You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Thanks again for joining us as we make our way through the book of Mark. Today, we're going to be studying this question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus presents this to his disciples, and he ultimately asks us the same question as well. But before we begin, why don't we just spend a short time in in prayer? God, I pray that your word would speak to us. I pray that as we study this, that it would come alive and that it would grow grow in relevance to us and, and the way that we live. And ultimately, we pray that we can land on the right side of this question in realizing that you indeed are the Messiah. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, why don't we begin by looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and 28. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So Jesus and the disciples are walking along, and he says, what is the rumor mill saying about who I am? And they start throwing out different things that they've heard that maybe he's John the Baptist who has been resurrected or Elijah who's been resurrected. But Jesus turns to the disciples and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And really, this is a ultimately important question, not only that he asks his disciples, but also a question that he ultimately asks us about his identity. Many people view Jesus as a fascinating figure, one that has dominated Western civilization over two two millennia. Yaroslav Pelikan says, regardless of what anyone may personally believe or think about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in history of Western culture for almost two centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up from out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars, and it's by his name that millions curse and his name that millions pray. So Jesus is a a dominant figure, an influential figure in human history, and one that's incredibly polarizing. And it really centers around the question who do you say that I am? How, where do you land on that question? Now, there are a number of different options that the Gospels present to us. Obviously, the one that Jesus points out and the disciples point out is that some were saying that he was actually a prophet or a good teacher. And I think a lot of people still view Jesus as a good person, a great moral teacher today. And I think that people say, Jesus is somebody who should be respected because of his teachings on love and the golden rule, but not worshipped. And yet, when we look at Peter, what does he say? He says, actually, Jesus, you are more than just a good teacher. You are the Messiah, the Christ. Now, I think there's some confusion on this, this title that the New Testament gives to Jesus, the Christ. 
I think that sometimes when we hear Jesus Christ, a lot of times we, we associate that with somebody who slams their finger in the door or, you know, parents scolding their children for doing something wrong. I know that up until I was about six or seven years old, I thought my name was Jesus Christ because my parents would constantly say, Jesus Christ, get down from there. But when you look at the name Christ, it's actually, it, it means the anointed one or God's chosen one. And this represented uh, prophecies that were in the Old Testament that, that talked about this coming one whom God would send that would become a savior king. So Peter concluded that Jesus was much more than just a prophet and a good teacher. He actually concluded that Jesus was sent by God to be the savior of the human race. Not to mention, Jesus also claimed to be the Son of God. In John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the, the Pharisees tried to kill him calling for, because he was calling God as his own Father, making himself equal with God. So there are a number of statements that the religious people of Jesus' day interpreted and viewed as Jesus actually claiming to be God. So based on Jesus' own statements about himself and the way that people took him and, and his, at his word, it really doesn't leave too much room to suggest that Jesus was merely a good teacher. Another option that comes up, and something that we see in the Gospels as well, is that some people were actually calling him a false prophet or maybe even a deceiver. At, at best, he was mistaken. At worst, he was intentionally trying to deceive people into believing that he indeed was the Messiah. You think about people who don't believe in Jesus. They still tend to respect him as a good teacher. For example, John Stuart Mill, who is a philosopher, a skeptic, and an antagonist of Christianity, admitted that Jesus was a first-rate ethicist supremely worthy of our attention and emulation. Really, if Jesus was deceiving people, then what was his motive? Typically, when, when somebody claims to be a messianic figure or claims to be God incarnate, typically they have some sort of motive. They're looking to try to get something. Claiming to be God in ancient Israel wasn't exactly a public relations formula for a successful career. In ancient Jewish culture, they were strictly monotheistic. And at times, the Jewish people sought to stone and execute Jesus because he was making claims tantamount to being God himself. Also, Jesus didn't gain the money, power, or control that you often see with people who are trying to deceive their followers. You think about somebody like Jim Jones. And he used his influence, his power, in order to gain control of his members. And he often used that to gain sexual favors from them. And ultimately, he convinced 800 of them to take cyanide and kill themselves in Guyana. And yet, when you look at Jesus' life, he didn't gain any of those things. He was a single man. He was a poor, itinerant teacher. At one point, somebody came to him and said, Jesus, can I follow you? And he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, even though foxes have dens 
and animals have different places to, to rest, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And so Jesus never gained the money. He never gained the power or control that you would see from somebody who is trying to become a false prophet or a deceiver. I think the other option that's presented in the Gospels was that he was demon-possessed or suffered from serious mental illness. We see at several points throughout the Gospels that people were questioning whether or not Jesus was actually sane. I mean, after all, if somebody is claiming to be God incarnate, you would have to question whether or not they were seriously mentally ill. In John chapter 10, verse 20, after he finished a lengthy discourse, many in the crowd said, he's demon-possessed and he's raving mad. Why are we even listening to him? And in another case, in John 7, verse 20, the crowds responded to some of the statements that Jesus was making by saying, you're demon-possessed. Who's actually trying to kill you? So people in Jesus' audience were already concluding that maybe, maybe he is delusional. Maybe he, is, he thinks that he's God or the Messiah, but he really isn't. Now, you might say some geniuses hold bizarre views about certain things, yet they remain generally sane. I mean, you think about some people who are brilliant scientists, and yet on some sort of like political issue or social issue, they're a little bit off. And we tend to generally overlook that because of their, the, the great work that they have done in different areas or other disciplines. And yet, we would have to admit, though, if there was somebody who was a famous scientist or somebody who was a brilliant thinker who held a view such that certain races are superior to others, that would tend to generally discredit a lot of the things that they have to say. And in the same way, when we think about Jesus making statements about love and humility, all of that would be erased if you really seriously considered that Jesus also made the claim to be God himself if it wasn't true. Peter Kreeft, a Christian philosopher, puts it pretty well. He says, a measure of your sanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. He says, if I think I'm the greatest philosopher in America, I'm only an arrogant fool. If I think I'm Napoleon, I'm probably over the edge. If I think I'm actually a butterfly, I fully embark from the sunny shores of sanity. But if I think that I am God, I'm even more insane because the gap between anything finite and the infinite God is even greater than the gap between any two finite things, even a man and a butterfly. He makes a really good point here, namely that the greater the claim, the greater the level of insanity. And so if Jesus was saying, I'm more than a man, I'm the God man, and he was false, he was wrong, then that would confirm that he was suffering from serious mental illness. In fact, today, when we talk to somebody who claims that they are God or the Messiah, we would seriously consider whether or not they were mentally healthy. And yet when you study the words of Jesus, 
You don't see the words of somebody who has a Messiah complex, somebody who's inflexible, who's incoherent, all the telltale signs of somebody who has mental illness. Instead, you see somebody who exhibits humility, meekness, and teaches love and self-sacrifice in a coherent message. The final option that the Gospels present us is that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. In our passage in verse 30, when Peter answered, you are the Messiah or the Christ, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, which is kind of weird. I mean, it's implied that Jesus agrees with Peter's statement here, but he says, okay, that was awesome. I'm, I'm glad that you concluded that, but now be quiet. Shut your mouth, okay? Now, what's interesting is that Matthew actually elaborates on this, fills in some of the details, and gives, gives this passage a little bit more texture. In Matthew 16, verse 17, when Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. And so, uh, the reason why Jesus probably said to Peter and the disciples, don't tell anybody, is because he knew that his time had not yet come. That the moment that his identity was revealed to the crowds, to the public, that that would set off a chain reaction of events that would ultimately lead to his premature crucifixion and death, which was his ultimate mission here on earth. Verse 31 Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus elaborates on what this means, that the Son of Man has to suffer, namely that he will die and will rise in three days. Now, what Jesus is saying here was astounding. People in the first century, Jewish people, had never made this connection before. This term or phrase that he uses, the Son of Man, was his favorite title that he used of himself. And it's used throughout the Old Testament, but specifically he uses it in reference to Daniel chapter 7, where one like a Son of Man will come at the end of the age and will establish justice and righteousness on earth. And this person, this individual, the Son of Man, was actually regarded as a savior-like king figure who would rule. Now, Jesus is sort of throwing them a curveball here, though. He says the Son of Man must suffer. And based on the reactions that we get from the disciples, they're confused because in their minds, this messianic figure, the Son of Man, he was a conquering ruler, a king. And now Jesus is saying, but he also must suffer. And yet, one of the things that's very confusing is, um, why does he say the Son of Man must suffer? Why didn't he say the Son of Man will suffer? You see, in the minds of Jewish people, this idea that the Messiah will come is related to this idea that, that he will take away all injustice and that he will put aside all evil. And yet, how can, how can God do that? 
How can he send the Son of Man and take away and wipe out all evil and injustice without wiping out the entire human race? That's why Jesus had to come in the first coming and die and, and to, to, to forgive sin so that he can come in and establish justice without having to destroy the entire human race. He also says he must be killed and after three days rise again. So again, this, this must have been a total paradigm shift for the disciples. In their minds, they were following Jesus because he was going to be the king. He was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to ascend his throne, not go to the cross. And so this idea that Jesus would be killed and that he would go to the cross was something that would have been shocking to first century Jewish people who were eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Of all, all other manners of death offered some level of decency and dignity compared to the cross, where they would take the victim strip the victim naked, and hang them on a highway as they slowly died over the course of hours or days. And this is what Jesus would do. You see, Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to live, but to die. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to take power, but to lose it. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to conquer and rule, but to serve. And so it took a little bit of time for the disciples to put those two concepts together. The idea that the king, the Messiah, was also a suffering servant. So this really, I think, leads us to the first decision. If we conclude that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, then what God wants to ask you is, do you believe that I am God's Savior? It requires an answer. And I think that there are really three components or three dimensions to this first decision once we conclude that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. I think, first of all, it's a personal decision. I remember many, many years ago, I got up the nerve to finally propose to my wife after dating her for over a year. And, you know, being around college-age people, it's kind of funny because it sort of reminds me of what dating her was like, which was pretty interesting. But, you know, I think about that day when I finally decided, okay, I'm going to go and do this. And so I, I got up enough nerve, and I was really nervous. I mean, I felt pretty certain that she would say yes, but, you know, there's always sort of, you know, some existential doubt in your mind that maybe you could get the answer no. But for the most part, I felt pretty confident. And so you can just imagine if I got down on one knee and I proposed to my wife and I said, Hillary, will you marry me? And she said, you know, I think the institution of marriage is a wonderful thing. And I think that you would make many women incredibly happy. That would be devastating, right? There's only one right answer to the question, will you marry me? And the answer is yes. Any other answer feels like a no. And really, the, the point is that I'm, I wasn't asking her, does she believe in the institution of marriage? I'm asking her, will you marry me? 
And in the same way, when Jesus says, do you believe that I am God's Savior? He's not asking you whether that's something that makes sense to you just on a cognitive level. He's asking, will you come into a relationship with me? Will you receive the forgiveness that I freely offer you? The second thing is, it's a significant decision. It's something that is going to alter the course of your life in the same way that by saying yes, my wife knew that that would change the trajectory of her life. And so in the same way, when we say yes to Jesus, it changes us. It forever alters not only our life in this life, but also our eternal life in the future. I love this passage in John 5, verse 24. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. They will never be condemned for their sins, and they will have eternal life. And so this one decision to say yes to Jesus, to believe in him, to have faith in him, will forever change your life. Finally, it's a polarizing decision. You know, again, going back to the illustration of asking my wife, will you marry me? You know, imagine if I said, or if she said to me, you know, Conrad, you're, you're a fascinating person. I'm sure that there are many women who would say yes. I mean, what would, what would you think about that? I mean, you would, you would interpret that as a no. Maybe my wife says, you know, let me think about that. Can I get back to you in a couple years? I mean, again, it's, it's not a no, but it is tantamount to being a no, right? And so in the same way, when we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you are a fascinating figure in history. Or when we say to Jesus, you know, many people believe that you are the Messiah. Or when we say, you know, Jesus, maybe I'll take you up on your offer sometime later, years down the road, when I establish a family. To him, that is like saying no. And so it's a polarizing decision. And so, you know, maybe some of you are, are listening to this. You are in the place of the disciples. You have been investigating Christianity. You've been investigating Jesus and his life and his claims. And maybe you have concluded, I think Jesus is the Messiah. I think he is God's Savior. The question is, are you going to place your faith in him? Do you believe that he indeed is God's Savior? Verse 34 says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his other disciples and says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He says they must deny themselves. You know, uh, the Christian life is all about self-denial. And it's not self-denial in the Eastern sense, but it's self-denial for the sake of serving and loving others. 
And so the pathway that Jesus chooses for his followers is one that he took himself during his own life. One of self-abandon, one of self-denial for the sake of sacrificing for others. And he says this, he says, if they want to follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me. Now today, you see a lot of people wearing crosses, and it, it really is sort of a sanitized symbol. Because in the ancient world, it would be insane to see somebody wearing a symbol of a cross around their neck. Because the cross was actually a symbol of torture and death and humiliation. And so Jesus says, in the same way that I took up the cross, if you want to follow me, then you need to, you need to do the same thing. And, you know, the disciples, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They, they had seen crucified people as they were walking along the highway. They knew that when somebody from their village was being taken away by some Roman soldiers and that they were going to be crucified, that they would never see that person again, that they were going to their eventual death. And so I guess the question is, why would anyone want to do this? And what does this mean for me? Finally, he says and explains, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their entire soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus asks this question. He says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and yet you forfeit your soul? You imagine if somebody came up to you and said, Hey, I want to strike a deal with you. I'm going to give you $2 million. And you're like, that sounds like a great, a great offer. But there are two conditions. One is you can only have that $2 million for 48 hours. And at the end of that 48 hours, you're going to die. No matter how you look at it, that's a bad deal, right? And some might say, well, at least you get to hold it for a little while. You know, when you look at your life, the span of your life compared to human history and the age of the universe is like a blip on the screen. And so the question is, you gaining the whole world and in the same way forfeiting your soul at the very same time, it's just not worth it. You see people who work so hard to achieve to gain status, to make a name for themselves, to accumulate as much wealth as they possibly can so that they can buy these beautiful houses furnished with incredibly comfortable furniture. They live their lives to, to, to be regarded by their colleagues as an expert in their field. And yet it would be a shame that even after all of that, gaining the whole world, that at the end of their lives they forfeit their souls. And really, all that we gain in this life can never buy us the most important thing that we could ever have or obtain, and that is eternal life. Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. This is a famous paradox. Those who want to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their life for me will save it. 
You see people who, you know, devote themselves to living for self, to living a self-centered way of life. And in the process, they end up destroying their own lives, but ultimately they end up losing their life eternally. And Jesus says, what's the point of trying to grasp onto your life when ultimately you will lose it? But if you give your life to me, and for the sake of the gospel, the good news that I've given you, you will save it. You know, aside from eternal life, what will you gain? I think two things. First of all, you'll get identity, and you'll get significance. I think it's interesting when you look at the word that Jesus uses here for life. It's the Greek word suke, where we get the word psychology from. And really, it describes more than just your soul. It also means your, your life, your sense of self, your identity. You know, in every culture, every culture looks at a certain set of things and says, if you get those things, if you gain those things, if you earn those things, those things are going to give you a sense of identity. That's going to make you whole. That's going to make you somebody. You know, in more traditional cultures, it's about having a family and having children and having a happy family. And if you can get those things, if you can, if you can have a great family, then you are somebody. In more individualistic cultures like our own here in the United States, it's about obtaining success, getting to the, to the summit of your career and your field. And so the idea is that if I can just simply gain success, accomplishment, achievement, and the things that come with that, then I'll be somebody. Then I'll have a sense of identity. And yet what we find, though, is in this view that, you know, being able to gain and accomplish things is what gives me my sense of identity. It, pu it puts us on really unsteady footing because anything that threatens that tends to shatter our sense of identity. And yet what's interesting is that Jesus, on the cross, at the cross, lost his identity. You might be saying, what? What does that mean? Jesus tied his sense of identity. He intertwined his sense of identity with his relationship to the Father. And at the cross, he set that aside. He became God-forsaken so that we would not be God-forsaken. He lost his sense of identity, one that was intertwined with the Father, so that we could gain an identity as God's adopted children. C.S. Lewis, in the last two pages of Mere Christianity, says, the more that we get what we call now ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Paradoxically, the, the more we give away to Jesus, the more we give away to God, the more of ourselves we actually become. He says our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist God and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated my own, by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly called myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events 
which I never started and which I cannot stop. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained by my desires and what others have said and done to me. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. And so in giving up ourselves and losing ourselves for him and for the sake of his mission here on earth, we find our true selves that we have been searching for. Also, we see that in addition to eternal life, we get significance. He says that whoever wants to save their life um, will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. And so God has commissioned us to give our lives to something much bigger than ourselves, which all of us yearn for. I think all of us have a subconscious doubt in our mind that the things that we are striving for really have no meaning at all. And interestingly, some who have, who have gotten to the pinnacle have reported to us down here that whatever we're looking for, it's not up there. And yet we remain unconvinced. God says, I want to give you true significance, something that's going to have lasting, eternal significance and purpose. And so this really leads us to the second decision that we face. Once we have received Christ, at some point in time, God will ask, will you entrust and devote your entire life to me and my message? And I think this is a decision that we will have to make And we're going to have to count the cost on this. You know, I think about the parable of the foolish builder in Luke chapter 14. Jesus tells this parable about a guy who starts this building project. He builds this tower, and he only gets halfway through and runs out of money. And the bystanders who walk by, they see this half-built tower, and they laugh at the man who built it because he hadn't considered the cost. And in the same way, some of us... God is calling on us to give our entire lives to him, to entrust ourselves to him, to meet our needs and to give us the identity and the significance that we so desire. And the thing that we need to see, though, is that we will have to count the cost. We should not make this decision in haste. We should prayerfully and thoughtfully consider it because once we make that decision, we've crossed over a threshold where uh, if we decide that we're going to live for the world again, that we will sort of have one foot in the door and one foot out and will be of no real use to God or the world. We'll just be mediocre. And so you should be thoughtful about this. You should think about it. But, you know, what God wants you to know is that he can, he can be trusted. And that if you give your life to him, if you devote your entire life to him and his message, you will not regret that. I want to end by just reading the last paragraph of Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis says, Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end will submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have not given away 
will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look after yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you want to give us an abundant life. It's scary, first of all, to make the decision of placing our trust and faith in you. But I look back on that decision that I made 20 plus years ago, and it was the best decision I've ever made. And sometime after that, I remember you calling me and asking me to really devote myself wholly to you. And that was really scary because there was a lot of things that I didn't want to give over to you. But I also knew that I could not just sit there and be one foot in and one foot out. And so, God, I pray for those who are in the same position. I pray that you would reveal to them that you are trustworthy, that you are good, and that you will provide for them the kind of identity, significance, and ultimately eternal life that will be satisfying. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.